1: I'm Michael Keegan, your host and editor of the Business of Government magazine. There are approximately 75 days between a presidential election and the inauguration of a new president, and this is considered the presidential transition period. It is a time of opportunity and hazards for an incoming administration. The development of a government-wide presidential transition planning in the U.S. has a relatively short history the next presidential administration and senior level appointees need to be ready to lead and manage the government effectively when they step into office on day one. But what are the characteristics of a well-prepared, successful presidential transition? How does the 2008-2009 presidential transition represent a model to follow for future incoming and outgoing administrations? And what does the future hold for the U.S. presidential transition process? We will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Martha Kumar, author of Before the Oath, How George W. Bush and Barack Obama Managed a Transfer of Power. Welcome to the show, Martha. It's great to have you back.
0: Thank you, Michael. It's nice to be back.
1: I just finished your very, very interesting and timely book, Before the Oath, and uh, let's talk about it. And what I'd like to do initially is um, set some context around the history of uh, U.S. presidential transitions. And could you start by giving us an overview of the history and evolution of this effort? And what are the key aspects of the presidential transition of power?
0: There's not a long history to it of a formal transition. The first one where a president really thought out beforehand when he knew he wasn't going to be running for reelection and it was important to him the quality of the information he left behind was truman truman would want wanted to make certain whoever his successor would be would not be left in the same situation he was when he became president on the death of franklin roosevelt Because he had been in as vice president a short period of time, coming in January 20th. And then in early April, Franklin Roosevelt died and Truman became president. And he found that there was a great deal that he didn't know about what was going on in government, uh, particularly relating to the war. And the biggest item was the development of the atomic bomb, and he had been unaware of that. And that really... Uh, was important for him of what he did for his successor. He did not want that to happen to him. So what he did after he announced at the uh, Jefferson-Jackson Day dinner that he wasn't going to run for reelection, then he talked to people in the Bureau of the Budget about preparing for a transition and gathering information because he did not want his successor to be left as he was. So they set about gathering the information. Truman also had wanted to go a step beyond what people had done before by bringing into the White House the candidates for the presidency after their nomination at their national party nominating conventions. So what he did is he wrote both um, Adlai Stevenson and uh, General Eisenhower about coming into the White House. And let me, let me read sure, to please. you the exchange, because in a way it's, in, it's important in this transition, this past 2008 transition, because I think what had happened, what Truman tried to bring about, bringing the candidates in early happened in 2008, but it happened in a different way. It was the representatives were brought in early. So, in a way, it it kind of closed that circle of what Truman had tried to do. So, on April 13th, 1950, August, I'm sorry, August 13th, 1952, the president wrote to the candidates, I'll have General Walter Bedell Smith and and the Central Intelligence Agency give you a complete briefing on foreign situation. And then following that uh, briefing, they would have lunch with the cabinet. Now, it would be separate times that Stevenson would come in and Eisenhower would come in. President Truman also indicated to Eisenhower that the CIA would provide him with information on the world situation on a weekly basis, and that's something Eisenhower took him up on. So after the initial CIA briefing, we will have luncheon with the Cabinet, and after that, if you like, I'll have my entire staff report to you on the situation in the White House, and in that way, you will be entirely briefed on what takes place. Eisenhower wrote in in response... In my current position as standard bearer of the Republican Party and of other Americans who want to bring about a change in the national government, it's my duty to remain free to analyze publicly the policies and acts of the present administration whenever it appears to me to be proper and in the country's interest. I believe our communications should be only those which are known to all the American people. Consequently, I think it would be unwise and result in confusion with the public mind if I were to attend the meeting in the White House to which you have invited me. <laughs> and Truman sure was, was not happy. <laughs> no, he wasn't. And you know that his his, his response was uh, going to be pretty strong. It was um, a handwritten response. And uh, Those he could mail when he was uh, uh, passing a mailbox on his morning walks. I'm extremely sorry that you have allowed a bunch of screwballs to come between us. You have made a bad mistake, and I'm hoping it won't injure this great republic. Um, but what he wanted to do was make sure that uh, both candidates were uh, were well informed. But um, the politics at the time didn't didn't call for it. Today the situation is different. And in two thousand and eight, Josh Bolton, who was the chief of staff and in charge of the transition operations for uh, President Bush had representatives of both the um, Obama and McCain campaigns come into the White House and work on several different items that were going to be important um, to get straight before a new president took office. So they really thought through getting things in order and coming into the White House. So what
1: fact—I mean, you alluded to a couple with, with the evolution from Truman to sort of closing that circle with Bush, where some of the things that Truman wanted to happen did actually happen. Um, what factors have contributed, in your mind, from your research, to the increase in importance of the presidential transition?
0: I think there's a uh, increase in the importance of the presidency. Okay and the president as a world leader, and the sense of time, that you just don't have time. You want to be knowledgeable when you come into office. And others in the political system and the public want that as well. Mm -hmm. And I think in 2008, one of the big factors were the attacks on the United States on September 11th. And a lot flowed from that. Congress passed legislation that uh, the Intelligence Reform uh, and Terrorism Prevention Act uh, allowed for early security clearances for people coming in to work on a transition. And those were important because these security clearances take a while. And now you have so many people that are working on a transition, and then many of them will go into the government itself in other uh, positions. So you want to get that done as early as you can. And the administration made sure that that happened.
1: Uh, but one thing I found very interesting, I, don't, I think your readers would find interesting, is that there's no constitutional requirement or guidelines that shape what is incumbent upon the sitting president to give the uh, next administration. Would you tell us what, whether you think there should be a more formal um, legal law or requirement around that? Well,
0: I think now you have legislation that does require that they gather information on presidential appointments. Mm-hmm. That at one time was given uh, after the election. You need it way before that. So I think it, you know that it's that it's worked well, okay. and 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 so in some cases. Uh, Why have a lot of legislation on something that's worked well? But I think it's worked well after an eight-year term. Mm -hmm. I think if it's a four-year term, that's a different matter.
1: Your book does a wonderful job of laying out, and I I don't want to get too academic, but it does a wonderful job of giving the legislative regime, if you will, of what rules or what laws apply to how the transition, whether it's funded, what's available. Could you give us a sense from like 1960s to now, what laws are out there?
0: Well, in in, uh, 1960s, in that period and a bit uh, uh, earlier, the parties picked up the tab. Oh, really? Yeah. So there wasn't government funding of transition. It really was just privately done because it, uh, or through the parties, but with money left over from the campaigns, that you didn't anticipate that it was going to take that much uh, to transition. And... Then in 1963, is the first legislation. And uh, with that legislation, um, you do have funding. It didn't uh, say exactly how that money was to be divided. And from Johnson's viewpoint, he saw that it should be the, – the amount of money should be divided equally between the incoming and outgoing presidents. But um, uh, that later got, <laughs> got changed so that that, uh, that was not the case. Then you have – because the money isn't really it turned out not to be sufficient, then you begin to have private funding and so Nixon raised a million dollars uh, to help his uh, his transition. Then gradually there is a discussion of whether you could use uh, campaign funds, and uh, which is what Carter wanted to do to uh, help prepare for the transition, but that was denied by the Federal Election Commission. Then gradually Congress recognized that uh, they needed outside money, mm-hmm. and because now it takes about. Um, say, somewhere about 12 to $15 million to do a transition. So you're going to have to raise um, outside money. But then they became sensitive to if you're going to raise outside money, then you have to have restrictions on it. So then they began uh, putting restrictions on it as well, as well as increasing the amount of money and making sure there was a difference between the amount of money that the president... Um, uh, the incoming president was to get, as well as the uh, outgoing, would get um, substantially less. Say by by 1992, that um, the um, allocated government funds were five million dollars, hmm. and then in private fundraising in 92. They had about um, 5.3 million dollars. So gradually, the amount of outside money has uh, has gone up substantially. And Congress became sensitive to issues such as um, the disclosure of in-kind contributions. And so uh, contributions then had to include things such as what kinds of of furniture, staff, um, all sorts of of things that people were giving that were in-kind that they had to be disclosed as well. Then in 2000, in the 2000 Act, required that uh, the National Archives and Records Administration and the General Services Administration were required to create a directory of information on federal departments and agency. And GSA was required to talk to candidates about uh, communications and computer systems. The more they became a factor, and that requires though, a lot of work, of early work, because you want to have a secure system. And then into the whole process comes the Office of Government Ethics, which. Begins their work in uh, of, with uh, presidential appointments in the uh, Reagan administration and becomes another factor in a transition that you have to consider is getting through the whole process of uh, of disclosure of finances. So generally, it has just become a lot more um, expensive and uh, with the many more requirements that there have been. So more it's more money and more regulation.
1: What are the characteristics of a well-prepared, successful transition? We'll explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. How can DOD improve its acquisition processes? Check out the latest IBM Center report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition. The authors emphasize the urgency of acquisition reform in DOD, given budgetary constraints and security challenges, finding that DOD will need to gain every possible efficiency while resisting the temptation to buy defense on the cheap. This report continues the IBM Center's interest in better understanding and improving the federal government acquisition process. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Government leaders and managers face major challenges today, including fiscal austerity, citizen expectation, the pace of technology and innovation, and a new role for governance. These challenges influence how government executives lead today, but more importantly, how they can be prepared for tomorrow. The IBM Center report, Six Trends Driving Change in Government offers a path forward for government executives responding to the ever-increasing complexity and challenges they face today. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness, with Martha Kumar, author of Before the Oath How George W. Bush and Barack Obama Managed a Transfer of Power. What are the characteristics of a well prepared, successful transition?
0: The 2008 9 transition uh, was a particularly good one because both sides uh, took very seriously. I think one of the uh, factors involved in a good transition is that the president himself is involved and that the president directs the transition. And the kind of work that you need to do requires long lead time. And so he talked to Josh Bolton in December of 2007 about the transition and told him that with two wars, it was really important to have the best transition ever. Most presidents will say they want to have the best transition ever, but the question is when they say it. Mm -hmm. Saying it in December of 2007 is a lot different than saying it the November of the presidential election, when you don't have time to do very much. Mm So, with that charge, then Bolton was able to um, plan out what kinds of things needed to be done and getting a head start on it. And it, at each point, trying to get in early so that they could, for example, with uh, rules and regulations, he didn't want a situation which they felt they had been stung by of dealing with. Um, with late executive orders and rules and regulations that they found uh, burdensome when they came into office. So they wanted to make sure that didn't happen to their successor. So um, Bolton set out rules uh, in April of 2008 that the cabinet secretaries and, and uh, agency heads were to respond to setting up a schedule, a calendar of uh, when any rules changes should be put out there. They wanted them by June and then October if um, for some emergency ones. And as it worked out, it didn't work out. Didn't work out. No, they, uh, the cabinet secretaries seemed to have a different calendar and they they really were taking the more pressing things on their calendar rather than uh, paying attention to this and Bolton and the administration was criticized by Democrats who felt that they were doing this early so they would be etched in granite and couldn't be changed when a new administration came in. Josh Bolton said that that really was not his, his intention. His intention was a good government thing, and he said it didn't work from any angle.
1: Well, Martha, we talk about early, 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 but what constitutes an early planning process around transition and how do you avoid, if you're one of the candidates, how do you avoid the, the perception that you're motivated by hubris because you think you're going to win? So how does, how does that all work?
0: Uh, for a sitting administration, early means that you can start. Uh, you can start, as say Steve Hadley did in in late two thousand and seven, to prepare the information on the uh, on the memoranda, the national security memoranda. And I think one of the things that uh, the uh, Bush administration did too is um, they laid out how important they thought that planning for transition was. Clay Johnson, who was the deputy for management at the Office of Management and Budget and had been executive director of George Bush's transition into office, he said that it was irresponsible not to be planning early. And so they tried to set that stage to help the candidates. So that the hubris argument would not really be something that uh, that was important to people. And I think people understand that you really do have to have planning. But on the other hand, you know, people are candidates are reluctant because they don't want to uh, look as if they're assuming that they're going to win. But early planning is important even for the campaign, because if you can think through what your goals are, put your campaign goals together in relationship to what your priorities are going to be governing, that really is very useful. And also, there are just some things that you can avoid doing in a campaign that are going to cause you trouble later on, like talking about how yours is um, going to be the most ethical administration. (laughs) I mean, that doesn't really get you any votes. And anything that happens that looks a shade unethical is going to be be something that's seen through the prism of the campaign. So you can see that with uh, President Obama and the issue of transparency. Mm -hmm. that uh, that will often dog them. People will bring up his statements from the campaign of how transparent his administration was going to be. And once you get into office, you find that it's not as easy just to release all information that you thought you could, their privacy, their, uh, privacy considerations, their national security considerations. So a candidate could uh, avoid some trouble by seeing what the limits are on the promises, on, uh, on ethics, and transparency, and I think also on the ethics line, when you say you're not going to have any any lobbyists, then no one has had a, a background of lobbying uh, in in a recent time that that can cause you trouble too, because there are going to be people who have worked at uh, nonprofits who have been working on particular issues, like whether it's uh, a child abuse or there's one a woman who was working in a, in a Latino organization. I mean, she required a waiver in order to get to work for the administration because she had lobbied as a nonprofit. And that's a lot different than... Uh, lobbying for a, say, a major contractor. In Obama's case, he said that he would issue waivers for some people who were necessary, and so his first waiver was to uh, William Lynn, who had worked for Raytheon, and they had done a very large uh, amount of lobbying for very big dollars, and he became the deputy for procurement in the Defense Department. And so the waiver got a lot of publicity. Every time there was a waiver, there seemed to be um, a lot of publicity on it.
1: I really found that your book, as well as a great narrative of history and its evolution, has some really practical advice. And one thing is you point out in one of your chapters, the 10 ways, uh, we don't need to number them, but you can give it it, is the 10 ways an effective transition benefits a president and how the presidential transition is really if it's successful how important it is for establishing your direction of government going forward so could you help us understand maybe some of those ways
0: right um, it um, a transition allows you to take advantage of the goodwill that is out there when a president comes into office there's a substantial amount of uh, goodwill if you can see it by looking at the percentage a president won by and then look at the early Gallup polls once he comes into office and you see a rise in the percentage of people who are supporting him.
1: So, Martha, one of the things I I found out I really enjoyed about your book was its narrative history but also its practical advice. And you you identify 10 ways an effective transition benefits a president. And how having effective transition, a successful transition, can actually set the course of the president's governance directions. Can you elaborate?
0: Continuity in government is important. And you don't want your uh, enemies to uh, take advantage of a time that is fragile. A lot of things have made it um, difficult when a president uh, comes in that there may be situations that they were unaware of. Like, for example, when uh, Clinton came in, we had troops in Somalia, and they were there on a a humanitarian mission, but it uh, turned out that we became the object of jihadis. Mm -hmm. And then it took him about a year to pull out. We had um, an attack on the World Trade Center that happened early on. Then you also had the situation at uh, Waco, that happened early as well. And in that case, the FBI was an important part of it. And the Justice Department uh, obviously was. But we didn't have an attorney general Mm -hmm. until uh, March 11th when uh, Janet Reno was confirmed. So you had nobody uh, really leading the, uh, the operation for the president. So Continuity in government is important. There are challenges that are out there that you want to make sure that are not going to um, damage your administration. And so you want to have as an outgoing president, you want to make sure to leave as stable a situation as you possibly can. What happens in uh, the early days of the administration are important because people can follow the administration. They're uh, looking at what you're doing. Uh, later on, they may lose interest, but they will have an idea of where you're going by what you do in those very early days. For example, Reagan, when he came in, issued a memoranda and executive orders that dealt with freezing federal hiring. And um, putting limits on travel of people who were in the bureaucracy as well as buying of furniture and that sort of thing. And he wanted to let people know that early on he was very intent on carrying through on his campaign promises of cutting federal spending. And he did it with those symbolic issues. In President Obama's case, when he came in, legislation that he had early on became very important for all of his administration. Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act was uh, was the first bill that he signed. And he signed that just a few days after coming into office. And he used that as one of the um, elements in his campaign speeches of what things he had accomplished. The auto bailout was very important. Uh, the American Recovery Act, all of those were very early in the administration and all of them very important in his accomplishments. So when you come in, you want to be able to uh, be ready but you could see right off where uh where he was going. So you you want to set the tone, but you also want to highlight what uh what your priorities are are going to be. I think also if the sooner you start, the better the information is going to be that you have to work with when you come into office. And um, another aspect, I think, of of a good transition is that it helps you reduce mistakes. Mm. So in a way, people don't think of that. But that's something that can help you in terms of appointments, particularly. If you have set up a process for how you're going to choose your appointees that calls for creating the White House staff first so that you're setting up your decision-making system, what kind of information you need before a decision is going to be ripe. You want to uh, have that. Then you can start thinking through who your appointees are going to be. Because mistakes early on in appointments can really slow you down. And they can slow you down, and um, they also can just put an emphasis on something that's negative, when, in fact, you should be able to come in in a very positive way. But appointments are the ones that seem to trip people up. Mm-hmm. Also, another aspect of how a transition can help you is setting up effective working relationships. Mm-hmm. One of the things, and it seems a small thing, but it was important that President-elect uh, Reagan did, is he gave a dinner during the transition period in Washington at a uh, fancy club and had uh, as guests not only people who he was going to appoint and Republicans. He had the Democratic leadership. He had uh, other Democrats as well. He had people like Robert Strauss, Mm -hmm. a very strong Democrat, and um, people that uh, were heading interest groups, people who were important to the Washington community, uh, news media people. And he wanted to let people know symbolically that he was making a transition from being a candidate to being president, and that is one of the most important aspects of a transition, is to make that leap from being a candidate of a party to president of all of the people. His dinner was a very good stroke. Mm -hmm. And he followed that up by going up on the hill and then talking to the Democratic leaders as well as Republican ones, going to their place and talking to them, as well as the court.
1: So, Martha, throughout your book, you, you uh, use the term institutional memory, and you underscore the importance of institutional memory. And I'd like to understand there are four sources of information that you identify that are av- available to candidates and to incoming, uh, the incoming administration that could help shape how they move forward in their transition. Can you
0: outline those sources for us? At one time, it seemed like there was not a great deal of information out there. But in fact, there is. In a uh, digital age, uh, there's so much information that you can find online about all of the uh, departments and agencies. You can use that information in your transition work early on. There is also information, like Congressional Research Service has um, a lot of very good information on transitions past, and uh, also on the presidential appointments process. Then uh, the Government um, Accountability Office uh, does as well, has had reports on performances of uh, particular transitions. Then There are a lot of um, books that are out there as well. As um, a part of my transition work, I had a project uh, called the White House Transition Project. And it's a group of scholars. It's a nonpartisan effort to provide information for people who are coming into the White House on their offices. And so, for example, when people come in, there's no files there and so there's no manual. And so one of the things that, uh, that we have done is um, through interviewing people who have served in key offices in a White House, we have put together analytical studies of what the functions of the offices have been over time, the responsibilities of the uh, directors, what kinds of issues they've dealt with, what things have worked, what things haven't worked, what information they wish they had known coming in. And so we have these essays as well as provided organization charts for each of the offices that we've studied. Who has been in positions and what positions there have been. And you could and look at the organization charts for several different administrations and see the different ways, like, say, the Office of Communications and the Press Office have been organized and then get a sense of what works and what doesn't, and then, uh, you know, ask people how those things have worked. Our project has had that kind of information out there, which is on our website and the Transition Project website, and that uh, anybody can access very early on and understand about White House offices. they scholarly uh, publications. One of the things, yes, that we have done is given about 25 to 30 books that relate to White House operations and to transitions to the transition offices, and we've done that uh, early. And one of the things also is after somebody comes in office, those people are still available. People who have been there before are still available. I mean, you can look at the White House visitor logs and see who from the past has come in, from in, this, in the Obama administration, who has come in to see the president and his top aides who has, have served there before. So, for example, John Podesta came in pretty frequently and before he came in actually to work for a period of time. There are others who come in too, particularly if there's a, a crisis, they may bring back people who have worked in the communications and press areas to get their thinking. And then sometimes uh, people just do that by phone as well, that they feel they can easily call up one of their uh, predecessors. And one thing about it is that people don't talk. They don't talk about coming in and and talking to their successors. They recognize that it's important that people who are in office have that ability to talk to people without their going and discussing with the press what the people in the White House wanted to know.
1: Uh, you lay out in your book, Before the Oath, that transition, presidential transitions have certain phases to them. And maybe 2008 was a different had an extra phase. Could you give us a sense of the maturation period or the evolution of the transition cycle? What, what does it go through?
0: Of the five phases of uh, the the uh, transition, um, beside the very early period where you're gathering information mostly in the shadows, and then there is the, the period, at least in this past 2008 uh, transition, where... You had the presumptive uh, candidates, and there was informal work that was done before the uh, post-convention. When you have both parties formally nominating their candidates, when that happens, then now particularly with uh, new legislation, then there is going to be help from the General Services Administration in uh, creating a office space like they did for Governor Romney uh, when he was running, and he had GSA had uh, had space for him, and then they set up the uh, secure computer computer system, then one of the aspects uh, through this whole time period are the kinds of intelligence briefings you get. Then you're going to um, you're going to start getting intelligence briefings and they are not going to give you everything. And, in fact, you don't get that until you come into office. Then you get ones that are, you know, going to give you sources and methods, but you're not going to get that at any point uh, beforehand. So post-convention, there's going to be a lot of operation that's done because then you can uh, do your agency review teams, Mm -hmm. get that all straight so that when the election comes, then after that you can get all the information that you're going to need. The final phase is going to be once you get into office, and then that's the uh, fifth phase where you come into office, and then you roll out all of the initiatives and the personnel choices that you had planned on although with uh, personnel you're going to lay that out uh, before you get to the White House.
1: What's the difference between a policy working group and an agency review team?
0: The policy working groups uh, during the campaign uh, were working on particular issues. yeah, And so some of those policy people then ended up working on agency review teams as well. Yeah. So with a memorandum of understanding, then once that is worked out of what kinds of information, because it has to the in- sitting administration has to decide what kind of information they're going to allow people to have, and then the incoming wants particular information, maybe that the sitting one what doesn't want to uh, provide, but those were easily worked out. And so they have to ha- have a way of, of resolving any disputes. And they, uh, they did do that through their MOU. And that was signed the Saturday after the election, and which is early. And that was because they had worked through it.
1: What does the future hold for the U.S. presidential transition process? We will explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. In a world inundated with all kinds of information, timely, relevant, and more predictive data can drive better decision-making. Law enforcement agencies are at the forefront in leveraging data and using innovative software to generate predictions that help police prevent crime. What is predictive policing? How can using analytics make us safer? Check out the IBM Center Report, Predictive Policing, Preventing Crime with Data and Analytics by Jen Bochner, and find out. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What do agency leaders need to know about the federal acquisition process? What are some of the key federal procurement trends? And how can agency leaders overcome today's acquisition challenges? Check out the new center report, A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition, by Trevor Brown and find out. The report offers practical recommendations for improving federal acquisition. Download your free copy of A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition at businessofgovernment.org and find out how the business of government is not business as usual. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Martha Kumar, author of Before the Oath, How George W. Bush and Barack Obama Managed a Transfer of Power. So, you know, one of the things you point out and you mentioned about some of the hiccups that some of the uh, incoming presidential administrations have dealt with is around appointments. And I, I wanted to get a sense, maybe not necessarily to transition, but just, just your your experience in this area. Why is that the case? Has, thing, has that changed? Has there been some reform around nominations and presidential appointments? And what's what can we expect in the future?
0: One of the things to take into account is that we have a lot more people to appoint because government is, um, the layers of people that um, are appointed the requiring Senate confirmation have increased. Now, there's legislation that decreased it mm-hmm. to some extent. They took out the PAS positions uh, that were councils and departments that did legislative affairs, did communications. They decided that they actually did not need Senate confirmation because it's hard to staff up a department and have all these positions, have all the policy positions, and then have those process positions as well have to go through uh, through Senate confirmation. Their hurdles have become higher. but I think one of them is because of financial disclosure. Mm-hmm. That slows you down then one of the things you don't want to have happen is you don't want any um, nominations to blow up on you because that's going to be a lot of bad press, loss of momentum, loss of goodwill. And so you have to work on preventing trouble. And so one of the things uh, that administrations have developed is a personal data statement that uh, asks a very large number of questions. It depends. Some of them have had under 20 questions. But uh, usually one of the questions is, um, have you or members, of, any members of your family ever done uh, anything that is going to bring um, disrepute on you, the president? So a lot of things fall into that category. So the process now of appointments is very intrusive. You know, in an earlier time people didn't care as much about uh, the personal backgrounds of people today that that is true and that deals with things like um who you've employed what tax troubles you might have had I think people sometimes just don't think that something is relevant and then they find out like you know who they hired as a domestic help mm-hmm. and uh, they turned out to be undocumented and uh, that causes a big issue. So then that becomes a question that is going to be asked of everybody else. So you have, out of experiences, particular experiences, you have more and more questions that are asked. So the process uh, takes a long time. And I think early in the administration, they were spending a lot of time trying to deal with financial crisis. Any time an appointment um, is causing you trouble, then that's going to slow the momentum, particularly in uh, in that department. Um, if it takes some while to get somebody in, then uh, then that's going to uh, uh, cause trouble all the way down the line. You
1: mentioned in your book that the one of the benefits of getting together earlier. Yeah, in the pre-convention and then post-convention, was that these folks got to know each other, uh, both the Bush administration outgoing, uh, national security is a good example of that, or, or crisis training kind of thing. So, there was a terror alert, which you start off in your book on Inauguration Day 2009. And I'd like to talk about that. How did the Bush team and, and the Obama team work together in addressing this issue, and what lessons were learned from this potential crisis event?
0: It was a, um, when you look at the cover of the book, I have um, a picture of Bush and Obama walking out of the uh, out of the White House from the coffee they had had, mm-hmm. and, and the, with their families and the, and Vice President, both incoming and outgoing, and they're on their way to get into the limousine to go up to Capitol Hill. Before that, you had while they were in the Blue Room, all of them having coffee in the Situation Room, they were discussing the threat on the inauguration. The threat, fortunately, never materialized, but it was uh, something that had concerned them for for several days. It came up all of a sudden and then vanished. And the threat was um, from... Mm Al-Shabaab. There was an alert that it was put out over the weekend that mentioned Al-Shabaab. And um, they thought that it could be um, an IED, Mm -hmm. but something that uh, probably wasn't going to be close to the president would be further back on the mall area, but something that could possibly kill people. So they had to uh, work through that and uh, think of um, what some of the alternatives were. They went through um, a possible um, crisis and discussed uh, the, what kind of resources, alternatives there were. And the more that people can get together, I think that's one of the lessons of this transition is the better it is. That if you have... Um, if you have information provided on paper, that's really important to have about how things work. But you can really discuss it in detail when you get together. Well, Martha, in D.C., policy
1: formation, the policy side seems to tends to get much of the focus, the sexiness of policy development, with management and the implementation of policy really taking the back seat. From your perspective— why does management take a back seat in D.C., and what can be done to put it at the forefront and raise its station?
0: With Republicans, it tends to have, um, uh, to have more of a – be more of a priority than it is with Democrats. But I think in this administration, one of the things that happened was even if they had had a strong management agenda, um, that they had to deal with financial crisis. And that was just crucial. It was indeed a big crisis, and I think all of their other priorities had to take a back seat. Although they, you know, they had um, uh, queued up um, a number of items like. Uh Lily led better and but then they had to do the auto bailout and do the Recovery Act. And so I think that they were so involved in the policies that they had to uh to uh develop and then implement that um management as a separate issue just didn't seem to um to get a toehold. I think generally it's just uh, um, it is so crucial to everything you do. But people often work on a, uh, a calendar of, of, you know, what's happening next week, what's happening uh, next month, and not thinking about um, how they're going to implement all of it. One of the things that you've seen in this administration is a large number of, of people who are acting heads of of uh agencies and um and deputies and they don't have the same kind of position that someone does who has been confirmed and um i think that has been a problem When you look at the office of management and budget and it's constantly been used as a farm team <laughs> and so if you know somebody does very well um, like Sylvia Matthews, and, you know, she she's... Agency, that's right, yeah. Jeff seinstein uh, ends up at the uh, the White House, and and so that's... Um, unfortunately, um, that's happened to um, an agency that's just particularly crucial to government because the uh, Office of Management and Budget is, uh, uh, knows and is responsible for all the programs and, and people in the government, which is is why the people who are there and have done well uh, can be shifted kind of anywhere in government. But, you know, you want stability in that operation. Um, And And there's a
1: marked difference because uh, you worked with Clay Johnson. I know you had him uh, discuss uh, your efforts in the book. But Clay stayed as deputy director for the duration. And it's a marked difference between administrations. So there was that continuity. And he pressed the PMA, the president's management agenda at the time, as opposed to having a farm team as you as you pointed out and I know uh, you know situations events take hold and you need to make sure you have the right people in place but management can take a backseat if if you're overcome by the day's events right? that's true yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: and uh, and you pay for it yeah and uh, um,
1: healthcare.gov being one example I would think
0: yes and I think one of the things that um, uh, that was Important to um, to healthcare.gov was and and there are issues there. And it shows the difference an individual makes that um, Tom Daschle was to be the Secretary of Health and Human Services, and he also was to have a position in the White House. I mean, as an experienced uh, Washington person, um, uh, both a House member and a and a senator and a leader. Um, and somebody who worked on health care issues, he knew the importance of the White House as far as the engine for policy. And so he wanted to... Have that spot so that he would be close to the president and uh, be able to handle the issue um, in a lot of different ways. And um, both his, his with his uh, his knowledge of the issue, his knowledge of government, and of the knowledge of the whole health community was going to be critical. And I just can't imagine that the same thing would have happened if um, if he had been running it.
1: So um, what's next, both in, uh, you know, presidential transition, more importantly, what's next? What's your next research area? I, I know I, I saw you had a wonderful uh, kickoff that the partnership for public service did. And you were up there with uh, Clay Johnson and Chris Liu. And you mentioned that you were thinking about talking about the, the, the current president's communication, his interviews, a thousand interviews you had mm-hmm. mentioned, which is un- so maybe you could talk about the future in terms of this particular topic and your next topic.
0: Yes. Um, Well, I'm going to work on the White House Transition Project again, and um, uh, I've retired from uh, teaching, although I'll go back and teach from time to time at Towson. But um, I wanted to devote my time to running the project so that we can gather information for more White House offices than we uh, currently have. Um, and then um, getting back to White House communications. And so I keep a database of all the interchanges that a president has. And so I have them back to uh, Ronald Reagan. So I chart their press conferences, their uh, short question and answer sessions. That's when somebody yells a question, you know, when there's a meeting in the Oval Office that the press has been allowed in at the top or the bottom of the meeting, and then um, the interviews that a president has. And for Obama, um, interviews have been very important, yeah. So he has had, he's had about 940 interviews, and that is more than um, George W. Bush and uh, Clinton combined. And so they used, uh, they used more of the short question-and-answer sessions uh, than, than he did. He doesn't like those, and so he—
1: Yeah, I'd like to—before we close, I'd like to get your sense, given your perspective as an observer, is that a style Asp, is that style thing between the presidents, or is that something that their communication directors tell them to do? Or how, why do they choose those different formats? Uh,
0: uh, there, there are a couple of uh, reasons. Uh, one is style. Is. The president likes to talk at length. You can see that in his press conferences. You know, he might give an answer of ten minutes to a question. That's better suited for an interview mm-hmm. that's going to be on one particular issue. And so he likes uh, he likes interviews for that reason because he can develop arguments. You know, he was uh, he's a lawyer and was an academic so time in answering a question you want to uh, that isn't a big factor you want to bring in all the buts and wherefores and so he likes interviews for that reason but also you've got a very fragmented media okay. and you you can't get the time like say with Reagan by this point he would have had i think he had about 30 nighttime news conferences from the Mostly from the East Room, and uh, a president can't get that kind of time today. Um, that um, that Bush, Clinton, and Obama uh, all have had f- had four, wow. and uh, and uh, of the nighttime, because you you can't get the uh, can't get the time um, so with a fragment of media what you want to do is figure out how you're going to get to uh, people and one of the ways you can do that uh, that the Obama people are using is um, is do interviews where you're where you're sure that you're going to you to reach different platforms so it may be an interview like say with um with Tom Friedman, his recent interview with Tom Friedman of the New York Times. And that was a video that had, and then uh, the article that uh, Friedman wrote, uh, when you looked at it online, you could get clips of particular segments of that interview. And then you could get the interview itself. So you could get the interview as a transcript or you could get the interview as a video. And so how... how the interview is promoted is an important thing for the White House. So when President was doing his um, his uh, pressing for trade legislation and the Trade Promotion Authority, he wanted to reach Democrats who would normally support him but who were against him on this on this issue. So they did um, an interview with Yahoo News with uh, Matt Bai, and. Uh, in that uh, interview, they uh, they had um, uh, when he wrote his article, there were embedded clips in it, and then uh, the full the full uh, interview, the video of it uh, came out later, and that reached hundred million people, and uh, because now it's worldwide and you can reach people worldwide, so it's a very different media than it was in and uh, say, in Reagan's time,
1: largely the before the advent of the twenty four hour news cycle and internet and
0: and cable and yeah, cable, yeah, and uh, yeah. And then the Internet. We
1: well, you got a lot to work on there. I mean, that's <laughs> your next project. Well, Martha, thanks for coming in today. It's great to have you back. And when you finish with your next uh, tome, I'd love to have you. We have an open invitation.
0: Oh, thank you very much, Michael. I look forward to it.
1: This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Martha Kumar, author of Before the Oath, How George W. Bush and Barack Obama Managed a Transfer of Power. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
0: This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.
1: What are the requirements of the Digital Accountability and Transparency Act of 2014, the Data Act? How is the Data Act being implemented, and what are some of the key challenges? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and others with Karen Lee, Chief Federal Financial Systems Branch, Office of Management and Budget. It's next week on the Business of Government Hour. Tune in Mondays at 11 o'clock for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.